Welcome back to your favorite contracts podcast. This is Tess Wilkinson-Ryan and Dave Hoffman at the University of Pennsylvania. And today we're talking Volks versus Arthur Murray Dance Studio. When the plaintiff decides she's taken her last dance with the studio, can their misrepresentation of opinion get her to rescission? Let's get started. Welcome back. We are talking about Vokes versus Arthur Murray. <laughs> and this is our second shot, maybe our second, third shot recording this particular episode. It's a hard case for reasons that we maybe did not fully anticipate, but this time it's going to stick. There's an expression, third time's a charm. This is gonna be charmed. We're gonna stick the landing. We're gonna stick, that's gymnastics. <laughs> not dancing. Okay. So, so Volks vs. Arthur Murray is a case about um, Audrey Volks, um, who has purchased a set of dance lessons from a local dance studio. And the case rings, pushes a bunch of really problematic buttons from the first line. Uh, Audrey E. Volks, a widow of 51 years and without family, had a yen to be an accomplished dancer with the hopes of finding, in quotation marks, new interest in life. So we're dripping with con- condescension from, from word one. I mean, not word one, but yeah, sentence one. Um, it's unclear if she has been a widow for 51 years or if she's a 51-year-old widow. Um, that that might ma- I mean that might matter a bit um, depending on whether talking about someone. Um, in the first or the second version of this recording, we did have a long conversation about that problem. Yes, we did. Yes, but <laughs> we now we're sparing you all, so just be grateful. <laughs> this is the thing. You just see how it really is a real discipline to be an actor. They do like a hundred takes. <laughs> <which one> feels <laughs> amazing. Oh, oh, <laughs> I'm like I'm already done. I've already heard enough from you. <laughs> That's it. End of podcast. We disagree on this on this case. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. Point is, um, Vokes realizes she wants out because she has paid tons of money for lessons she can never use. In fact, she's not um, the dancer that she thought that she was. And she brings a number of sort of a number of claims, only one of which I deal with extensively basically saying is this, it's kind of like undue influence or maybe this, maybe the terms, maybe the contract is unconscionable and then um, maybe more pertinent for at least the teaching purposes of this case, there was a misrepresentation of opinion. It is hard as the court points out to get a misrepresentation of opinion. It's generally true that to be actionable, actionable a misrepresentation has to be one of fact rather than opinion. But the court says that has qualifications applicable here, like when you have some sort of fiduciary relationship between the parties, there's not equal opportunity to get apprised of the facts, um, and there's some sort of, or there's some sort of uh, deceit. A statement of a party having superior knowledge may be regarded as a statement of fact, although it would be considered as opinion if the parties were dealing on equal terms, says the court, and then does not dismiss. So this is on a motion to dismiss, right? One thing we have learned in now hours of talking about this case on Zoom is that we have different views of reality. My view is that Vokes was alerted 
to the bad faith dealings she had been having with the studio and felt lied to about her dance potential and wanted out. Is that your view? Uh, yeah, no, that's my view. That's my view of what happened. What concerns do you have? <clears throat> it does feel a little bit like the director just said, action for the 50th time, and I, I'm going to have a hard time expressing the same enthusiasm I did on take number 47, which was, by the way, pretty goddamn awesome. However, <laughs> I have a couple. So I used to teach this case. Um, we used to teach from the same case book in which this case was. Um, and I taught it for a long time. And it was, it's a hard case to teach, uh, in part because, well, I found it to be hard. You, I think, find it to be delightful. I found it to be hard. Um, I, I found the language in the case to be not, you know, it's, it's condescending. It's, 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 I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty gendered. I think it's fair to say. It's pretty dripping with sexism here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there's a sort of intersectional sexism, ageism. It's got all of them. All the things. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the judge basically says, he, I mean, at the end of the day, she's going to get to use these contract defenses to escape contractual obligation. Interesting. I, I mean, I think she's sort of on some way suing for rescission, which isn't normally an affirmative claim. So she might be suing for like restitution, yeah. my money back. And my argument about why you're not entitled to it is that the contracts are not, are not real contracts anymore, <clears throat> as opposed to using this as a defense to their suit for obligation, because she's already out the money. Right. And to be clear, this court describes itself as exercising inherent chancery power. Right. A rescissionary authority, right? And the, the case I found to be hard. So we start with the sexism, which makes that case a little hard to teach because it puts people who feel bad for her yeah. in the position of, in some ways, adopting the frame that she's doesn't have agency, is yeah. a widow, is a widow. She yeah. is lonely. Right. She's um, she's been swayed by the persuasions right. of this sophisticated studio that they're a predator and she's a victim. Right. Is she yeah. supposed to be vulnerable because she doesn't right. have a husband or family? Right. So like, there are a lot of things that make you feel pretty bad about the case, and I didn't like the students being in the position of having to adopt those arguments when there's no really better arguments on offing in the case. Yeah. And then I tried to thought about like, what would be better arguments to make? And, and the very few of the better arguments are really found in common law contract law. Maybe you can say a little bit more about consumer law in just a second. So I found the sexism hard because the, it, the defenders of the result have to adopt the, 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 the frame, if not the language in some of the defenses that they would make. I also found it hard because I really, at the end of the day, I'm not sure I grasp the exact nature of the legal harm that she suffers. So I agree with your statement, which is, you know, misrepresentation or some combination of misrepresentation and unconscionability is where this sits. Like either she's lied to by the studio about an opinion, but the opinion is in, because they're sort of an expert in the thing, they're charged with responsibility in the opinions that they offer. Just like a Jamala, if you took your, a stone to a, um, an expert appraiser and they said, I think it's a topaz as opposed to a diamond, you would be able to hold them to the view. Yeah. Um, or if you were to take you know, your um, livestock to an expert appraiser of livestock, you'd be able to trust their view. So here, the idea is that you're allowed to trust the view even though it's an opinion. I get that part. Plus, 
there's so many hours she can't use them. It's just an unfair bargain. No one would ever agree to purchase 2,000 hours of dance lessons, which maybe that's true, but it's certainly on a motion to dismiss, that's a plausible argument. The problem I have is, although I agree with you that basically she, she was told by someone, you're not a good dancer. Like that's the harm. The harm is, I guess in my view, her psychic harm here, she has a psychic harm. And the psychic harm is she thought she, she thought she was getting one product. And when she's told you're not good at it, she feels betrayed. But part of the betrayal is sort of feeling like a sucker. Like she wasn't smart enough or savvy enough to understand that they were selling her a product. Yes. And part of the problem with that, from where I sit in the legal world, or the, the, the I'm not saying you're not in the legal world. I'm saying that like part of the, to frame it, to frame it is she, it would be better in some ways if no one had ever told her that she was a bad dancer, that this whole harm would go away if she never knew that she was a sucker. And that just makes it hard to figure out the, unlike unconscionability cases right. normally, so, unlike misrepresentation normally, the harm is the discovery of yeah. an opinion that's not true. And I guess I don't, okay, so, so that, so, so as we have said, we end up on many of these podcasts literally just arguing about the facts of the case and the facts of the world that we live in. And I disagree with you about there being no true harm. So let me try, let me try, we have, we've, let me try an example of, uh, let me try, let me try an analogy. Are you ready? Can, can I ask you, can it not be either um, um, knitting or youth soccer or ice dancing all How of which about youth tried baseball before. though okay youth baseball go for it that's a new okay. one all right you ready mm-hmm. okay so the for what it's worth the my i have my i have i have passing knowledge of youth baseball from my child who does no, no longer plays baseball but participated imagine but but so baseball is a is i don't know if you know this but it's a highly popular pastime in the united states you can even play professionally if you're very, very good. And Little League is very well organized. It turns out like once you start it, the whole thing. Imagine for a moment that my kid is playing for a couple of years. He's on a team that's called 10U. 10U because you have to, it's, there's, a whole, there's all these age rules about what team you can be in. And 10U means you have to be under 10 by whatever, June 1st, something like that. And um, the co- and the and the team has um, a coach and maybe has some people who kind of help out and one of them does specialty training stuff on the side and says you know he's really good your kid um, what, and and so what we should do is have set up these specialty training sessions if you want we can do like batting practice which you know you don't get enough of in these big group practices and like he could be really good this could be an entree for him for scholarships to private high schools, for scholarships to college, to play in the minor leagues eventually. And so we do this for a couple of years. And my kid is now 14, this part's not true, obviously. And around the age of 14, which is sort of the high schoolish age, um, we realize he's not good actually. All this time we've been getting input that says like, no, he's really quite good. But actually we don't play in that competitive of a league in the area. Like we don't ever see that he's not that good. Maybe the coach, right? And, but all the time we've been relying on this coach for these extra lessons. And indeed we have contracted out with him for an extra year forward of these lessons. And now we realize anywhere else in the real world, this, ch- this, this player 
is not going to get scholarships, not going to get offers to play in any kind of a team that would play you to play, play, play professionally or semi-professionally. I think that that is a, there's, that there's a real harm there because there is some, there was, there was, you were never definitely going to get the thing, but there is an outside world where there's a true judgment about whether or not there, about where, where the judgment that he's not good at baseball matters. I say, this is closer to that than you are admitting. She was going to go places and not be able to find a partner. I mean, here's the thing. I, I, I mean, the, Unsurprisingly, I'm unconvinced by this line of argument, in part because, of course, nothing about the promises they made are as explicit as the baseball coach saying he can play baseball in high school. They, they do not. They do not. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Yes, but I'm going to just read from the case in a moment. Yes. Go ahead. Read from the case. Read from the case. Well, now I can't find it. She was going to be able to... Something like dance with the best of them. It was, it was, but it was, but it was even. They didn't even use the. What? what don't shake your head. That's a really good point. <laughs> Capable. Ready? <clears throat> yes. Read that exact language. Read oh, the exact I language. Oh, go I will. Okay. The additional no, lessons I'm doing. The additional lessons would make her a beautiful dancer, comma, capable of dancing with the most accomplished dancers. In the. In the. That's it. In Mexico and Trinidad and Miami. Which are part of the Arthur Mary studio system. The thing that's hard about your reading of the case is that it, it this is going to end up feeling like the vice presidential debate. It's not good. No one's going to feel good about that. <laughs> the thing that's hard about that. that wait, of the uh, world, wait, which person? <laughs> So the thing that's hard is the case, all of the statements that they make about how she's going to be capable of dancing with accomplished dancers refer to her progression within the Arthur Murray insular dancing system. Your argument maybe. basically that's a, that's is- Maybe. That's a maybe. We don't know that fact, right? If she had a better set of arguments, she would have put them in her fourth amended complaint. Her argument is basically- I was promised to be able to be progressing within the Arthur Murray professional dance studio system to be able to be in Trinidad at an Arthur Murray thing. Before this third take of this podcast, you sent me a video from the Arthur Murray dance. Dancerama, which is a really, yes. Okay, great. Go ahead. Go ahead. The Arthur Derry Dancerama, at which people who were appearing to have a very good time were dancing. Yes. Is not part of the professional dance circuit. In the way, like there's, I think you're making it seem like there's like a little leagues and then there's like the professional dance world and the, the little leagues progress to the professional dance world. While it's the Arthur Murray thing that they promised her is you can be a gold star dancer within Arthur Murray. You can go to the Trinidad Arthur Murray dance thing. You can go to the Mexico Arthur Murray dance thing. And to me, the case then at the end of the day, like I think your argument is she should win on promissory estoppel. That the nature of the promise that, she, that they've made to her is like, if you pay us, we promise that if you pay us, you're going to end up being amazing. And, and that's not, and, and, and she reasonably relied upon that to her detriment. But her, and this is, so Deborah 3D, who has an article about this particular case, she makes this argument that like 
promissory estoppels, the better framing for this art set of cases is that, that really it's like the promise plus the associated implicit promises mm -hmm. about, about quality, about, about being respected within a relevant community, about being welcomed and understood to be an expert in the field. All of those things are implicit and reasonably understood to be implicit. However, in contract law, the only thing that really is probably going to end up mattering is the explicit statements they make and what a reasonable observer would believe based on those explicit statements. And I just don't see how you get from, if you pay us, we'll let you be a gold star in the Arthur Murray studio system to one day you'll be in, what's the Australian ballroom movie you want me to watch now? Strictly ballroom. ballroom. I'm sorry? Strictly ballroom. Strictly, Strictly ballroom. ballroom. So, so my colleague over there has me watch this a snippet from some Australian movie in which she says I mean, is an example of the famous director, but okay. It's well, not, it's not like a, it's is it also by, is it by the same people who did the waiting for Goffman thing? No, it's by the Moulin Rouge guy. Okay. So I watched that snippet and it made feel to it felt to me exactly like this, the movie, the fake set of documentaries about like, yes. the dog show. Yeah, exactly. Yes. It has that vibe. Exactly. Right. So it has a vibe of like, are we watching a real thing or is it like a shtick? And, and so that makes me feel, I mean, the reason why that's a hard example, the Strictly Ballroom Australian movie, which I haven't seen, which I guess I have to go watch now, is because I think that everyone inside the Arthur Murray studio system is a little bit half in on the joke. They know like we're doing a thing here, which is not a... Um, it, we're getting, everyone's getting a participation trophy. But like, because because we're all we're all trying to have fun in a participation trophy world. But is just that like, and and I would just want to compare your little league experience to my little league experience. Just to be clear, we were never offered like special lessons because of the incredible aptitude of my child. That was not our world. But yes, I go ahead. In my little league experience, I very much believe that everyone was in on the joke. And the joke was, they're like, actually, Dave, you get most improved second baseman five years in a row from 1982 to 1987. <laughs> and every year when I go and look at those trophies, I think to myself, like, what does this trophy probably symbolize? And what it probably symbolizes is everyone's like, wow, that guy really is not going to make it. But, you know, we are, we are in a, a gold star world in the Arthur Murray and the Youth League of Suburban Delaware County. Oh, I, <laughs> and, and I think that that's a fundamental difference we have about the case is that you right. think that the way to see the case is she's being, she's being bait and switched and the bait is access to this professional dance um, competition culture. And I think the bait is come to the studio and don't be lonely. And she doesn't switch. There's no switch. She got exactly what she bargained for until someone told her you're not very good and she felt embarrassed to be participating in the gold star culture. I think one of the, I mean, as I start to understand better what you're, where we differ on this case, <laughs> I don't think that the lived experience of most people in the, like one of the sort of pleasures of a, of a serious hobby is that you take it seriously. And to the extent that you're in on the joke, that's, that's like you're in on the joke of existence. That's like, uh, you know, I mean, like my, I mean, and partially I say this as what, because my experience being a parent 
of Little League was of being like, so we're in on the joke, right? And, and realizing, oh no, everyone else did not think this was a joke. Like parents are yelling at volunteer coaches <laughs> with, and, and they mean it. They're, I mean, that's what, like, you think the whole thing is performative? Kifabi, isn't that the word? Like the, the wrestling word for like the fakeness, but that what you also accept is real, but that you also think is fake. I think that's an, I think that that's maybe a idiosyncratic view of these enterprises. So, but the, the, part of the reason that movies like, that movies like Waiting for Guffman or Best in Show or Strictly Ballroom are, are particularly compelling I th- or, or make for such like sort of um, fine-grained satires is because from the outside, people's pursuits have a feeling of ridiculousness to them. But from the internal perspective, I don't think that they do. And so I think that there's sort of like a, so what I view that the studio is offering is like, you could, I mean, so the Arthur Murray Dance Studios, there's a lot of them. It's a big world, right? And so in fact, you can go to this Dancerama and the Dancerama is going to attract dancers from all over the world and have these very, um, hierarchical showcases of different dancers and it has an internal set of rules like even if she was never gonna go it doesn't matter that much like it's still they're still lying about a world that they know exists like i understand the things you're saying. And I think that the, some of them are, are resonant in, in, in lots of ways. We all have engaged in hobbies or in semi-professional pursuits where it's not really clear. I mean, the, the seriousness of the enterprise could be rule defined and there could be a sense that like you want access to that, that world and that buying your way into the world is not acceptable. There has to be some combination of talent and diligence and part of what you're you want out of that experience is the is the belonging that comes with putting in the time and they having earned the thing and if she was never able to earn the thing there's a sense in which she's been she's been snookered the the problem is like trying to match that to a legal theory that within the boundaries of contract law feels um cabinable because so many kinds of contracts would be susceptible to the claim, like, I thought I wasn't just getting X, I thought I was getting this whole other wider set of opportunities that X opened the door to, even though you didn't promise those opportunities. You only promised the gold star in the dance studio. Contract law doesn't really usually allow you to get to say, it was the access to the community that was never actually stated that I'm really buying. And I'm also a little worried about the idea that you are policing those communities in ways that I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, this is something like neither you and I are professional dancers, at least I don't know that to be true about you. I know it to be true about me. You know, my sense is that the, the professional communities of artists or other hobbyists sometimes can be quite, 
strictly policed because the hobbyists are trying to make have integrity about their own thing and sometimes maybe like are are evulsively changeable at moments like it changes a little bit and then changes a lot where you know you have collectors and for a while you had to be really old school money in order to get to be part of the collector networks and then the rich people started buying the art and then all, and the old school people were like oh god that new money that nouveau riche doesn't belong here and then all of a sudden they're like actually there is no more old money all there is is the new world and i have the sense of that here where the dance studio system and, and this is something you rejected the last time so you're gonna reject it again it's a ponzi scheme on a ponzi scheme like the 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 the, the the professional studios are pushing people into the dance competitions and the dance competitions are collecting money just like other competitions are collecting money. And if the economy went to hell, I think that everyone gets to come and gets to be respected. Money talks. I think that the, I mean, you have to sort of believe that there is no end point of like, that there's no endpoint where you could dis- where you would be able to discover some truth about a community with some tr- some some sort of truth about status in, in within a particular thing, right? And so, and I that's I guess where I disagree. Like I actually think that the idea the, the idea here is that if she went to the Arthur Murray Danso Rama and tried to and tried to dance in the whatever top flight exhibition that she wouldn't have been able to find someone. She wouldn't have, she wouldn't have been able to um, find a partner or secure, or she would have been turned away on tryouts or something that that there's that there is, or that the audience themselves would have responded so poorly. I mean, Part I mean, of the reason that sports, that sports, for example, work is because you have people willing to pay tickets to watch people do the thing. This isn't that different. I mean, I, I, I hear you, although again, like the Arthur Murray's competitions are not, don't have the attributes that you're giving them. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think the Arthur Murray are, it's like a closed system. So there aren't like, the people who are attending those are the same people who are like, it's like a, uh, the, what was that show? Tiaras, Toddlers and Tiaras, where they would have like toddlers and, and as beauty contestants. And the only people who attended those were the parents of the contestants themselves. And that's kind of my sense of how like the, these closed circuit competition networks work is that it's like, there's no, I mean, there's no external audience for the thing. It's all inside the, the, the scheme. I'm not sure that's totally true for these exhibitions. I think because they're dancing, they actually attract an audience that, that you might come see, you might come watch the exhibition because some of them are quite good. But, okay, that's, I mean, dancing is an art form that people will pay tickets to watch, will buy tickets to watch, but that, not, not um, you personally, perhaps, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know that it, it being closed to Arthur, being closed to Arthur Murray is like saying like, I don't know. I don't, I don't think we, you and I know what that really means because if it's, if it turns out that there are four Arthur Murray studios per state in the U S thus make, which is 200 and they each have whatever 
10 people like that would be that would be a big exhibition right that would be a big deal it might be that arthur murray occupies a ton of the space of ballroom dancing in the u.s let me just ask you this do you think that you believe she has a cognizable legal claim if she's good at dancing could she claim saying i was sold too many hours there were too many high pressure sales techniques regardless of whether i'm good at it yes she get does she get to make a claim here how much of this turns on your argument here? So I don't agree. I think she gets to make arguments about high-pressure sales. They just don't sound in contract. And she gets to make consumer protection claim about high-pressured sales. I didn't need this many hours of lessons. I can't possibly use them. It's 2,500 hours or 3,000 hours. It's too much high-pressure sales. It's sort of like people get to make high-pressure sales tactics claim all the time, even if the thing that they're getting has value. Well, I guess I disagree. I mean, I disagree because of the, I think because of the relationship of the parties here. So it is the case that a salesperson gets to tell me that they think that I look, that gets to lie and tell me that um, I look good in the outfit that I have tried on in their store. I don't know that it's the case that the teacher gets to lie and tell the, the, the person who, for, from whom I am, from the, my purpose is not going to work here. A teacher whom I am paying for their expert judgment on my artistic develop growth gets to gets to knowingly lie. Ah, so this is the this is a, a good. I'm glad we got here. So this is the moment in my social media history I've had the most unpleasant experiences. So maybe 10 years ago or more, uh, around this time of the year, I was teaching Arthur Mary. And I was moved to write a blog post when there were such things called blogs. And the blog post was sort of about what do you do with a student who's struggling? And, and a student comes to you after the exams in the fall and they're like, I really didn't do very well. I don't think I, you know, should I drop out of law school, basically? And my, what I said was like, actually, sometimes I've told them that they're better than they are. Because I, I wasn't sure whether or not they were going to succeed. Like I looked at their exam, it seemed like plausible, but not very good. And I said, you should keep on, you should keep on trying, knowing that like my, what I said about their talent was like not accurate in some objective way, at least at the moment, but trying to project forward. And I got a lot of pushback from people who basically said that's fraud. It's fraud to not give people a precisely calibrated, accurate sense of where they sit in a law school class or an educational experience. And I understand what they're saying. Like, you know, there, there's like a sense of like what you owe to other people is integrity. But actually my view is that as a teacher, what you owe to other people is like trying to help them be the best version of themselves. Counseling. And sometimes counseling, but counseling can include puffing actually, I think sure. and does often. I mean, very often as it turns out, you, I mean, in the Socratic classroom all the time, you're like, that's a great answer, but you know, sometimes it's not. That would be fine if we're talking about the next lesson that she's buying, right? But right. The, but the point is they're using that claim to, 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 um, to, make a, to make a sale of someone who has other reasons to trust the instructor. I mean, the interesting thing we haven't even said about this case is, of course, the, po the possibility that we're talking about like the, the like, physicality of this relationship. It's not, not at arm's length. It's not at arm's length is what you're saying. Like, <laughs> I have to be honest, I, years into contracts, and I actually still don't really know if arm's length is supposed to be far or near. 
<laughs> if you're in arm's length, that seems like you're super close to me. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely not social distancing length, right? No, this is this whole this whole thing is is a transmission risk. This case. <laughs> okay, yeah, but like there is something interesting about somebody who you've permitted to sort of breach your physical space, and then is allowed and then is allowed to sell you stuff. Like the there's a the intimacy of this is really is is really intense, and I think super tough, and I think it makes the I think it makes the lying about the opinion, which feels really cynical, right? What you're describing from the blog post is just not cynical, right? This feels really cynical. And so I don't know that the court, that she ultimately gets, that gets to win or whatever on this, in, which takes us to court, but this court's saying, I don't, it seems right to me that she gets to make the claim that like, you knew you were lying. Uh, yeah, I mean, I hear that part. And part of it is you have a sense because it's like a machine production. It's cynicism at scale. Yeah. This would feel different, I think, as a case if it was like a Tess Wilkinson, Ryan dancer, you know, dance instructing in the neighborhood right. where you have a sense that like maybe it would be plausible that you would have both better motives or worse judgment or like your judgment might be idiosyncratic. Yeah. While we might have the intuition that, I mean, there are in fact a lot of cases about, about Arthur Murray and the cases look really, really similar because they had a, they had a pitch. I mean, they had scripts and they had just like, um, you know, marketing on telephone has scripts. Arthur Murray had a script. This is the, th this is the way you get them to, to buy more. But this is why I end up feeling the case is not well placed in the contracts course. Like this should be a case for consumer law. It's, it's not, it's about like a mass cynicism, yeah. a mass technique of, of advertising, a mass technique of persuasion, which leads to results that really shouldn't, it shouldn't matter whether or not she gets better at dancing or not. The activity, the cynicism is bad at its, right. yeah, at its, at, at its core, right. regardless of what happens. The, structure, the fact that the structure of the studio system is to provide community sort of quasi respect of rewards based on classes you can't use that sort of hold the promise that eventually you could take those classes, but actually you can't. This doesn't, but every single thing you're saying, I'm like, is this law school? Are we saying bad things about law school? We're saying bad things about law school. <sighs> yeah, exactly. You know, when law school ends, it's only three years. That's true. That's true. Some of the most, those were some of my favorite years. Please don't understand. <laughs> I, I really do have the imagination of like, there's, the problem is that I, we're recording this later in the semester than some of the earlier ones. And I have the worry that there's like some law student who is like, it's, it's like late October by the time they listen to this. And they're like, I would like to dissent from this particular perspective about law school. Like, can you guys just tell me what is going to be on the exam about Arthur Murray and what I need to know? I mean, no, sorry, but that's, but that, it's not going to be on your exam. You don't it's not going to be on my exam. I don't teach undue influence. I think it's a crock doctrine. I, I, the reason why I don't, I don't think that people really win on this doctrine at all. The, the, what I like about it, what I, yeah. what I like about this case is, and I'll talk about the consumer law thing in a minute, but what I like about this case is that I like the, the sort of. The uh, steps to the argument? No, what? <laughs> Case is a mess. I like the I is like it, the idea the, the of a twirling, the twirling. I like the psychological 
nuance of the idea that you might have an opinion that itself implicitly communicates a set of facts. There's, you know, there's two, there's sort of two ways in my, both which, two things I think are going on here with misrepresentation. And I like them as, I like them sort of like conceptually. And I get that they're going to, the reason that part of the reason they don't work is because either you can just go with misrepresentation as fact, because you can sort of draw it out and explain why it's, why there's a fact, or you can't prove that someone was lying about their opinion. And so you're still, so you're stuck with, okay. But the point of it, I think probably underlies other bad faith cases. I bet I would bet if you scan for other cases in which the courts are worried about sort of bad faith promising, that part of this is what's going on, where the court says, where the where the parties are one the parties are stating an opinion, and either they don't believe they they are telling you an opinion that they that is not true of their own of their own mind, which is what you were describing um, in the blog post, or they are stating an opinion that is obviously implies some set of underlying facts that are known to be true to the speaker. I mean, I wrote, I once wrote an article about puffery, which basically made this set of arguments is that like what puffing claims do is that they- Please say what the title of the article was. It was a fine article about puffery. (laughs) Come on, it's so good. Best puffery article ever. Yeah, that's what it's called. <laughs> My favorite titles. I mean, it uh, it wins all kinds of awards for best title. Um, but it wasn't, I think, actually, at the end of the day, a very successful article. But I mean, this was the this was the claim: is that like if you look at the psychology of puffery and you look at the kinds of experiments people have done about puffery, it's that uh, some percentage of the audience hears facts, or they, if you ask them what's the content of the thing you just were told, they have factual predicates in mind, yeah. and the worry is that the speaker knows that yeah. or they, they get to play with the, yeah. they get to play on the line. They're yeah. like, I know that some people are going to hear this as a factual statement. And yet I'm going to be able to plausibly deny that I intended a factual statement. And what this court basically says is like, yeah, not today. You don't because you're cynically, you're cynically using your position, your, your, yeah. your intimate position and it would be different if it would be different if it wasn't ballroom dancing, but were instead, I don't know, modern dance. Well, but so this is, I mean, right. So part of the reason that the puffery there, I think, is that it feels like it's not puffery is that, so which is saying mere, I mean, I think whenever you say puffery, you sort of implicitly hear mere puffery, right? Just the kind of, just the kind of over the top nonsense that, you, that nobody believes is because it's one human saying it to another human whose body they are touching. That's my, I mean, that, that that's part of what's the, like, right, they're looking them in the eye and saying you're getting really good at dancing and that feels pretty different. So just to compare, so one, you said that you think that you think of this as sort of being more in the, more as a, of a consumer law um, case potentially, um, which I take it as your, as a suggestion that like it's the FTC who should be regulated or, or the state regulator authorities right, state sure. regulators. Um, and, and the, I think that's an interesting perspective also, I mean, also in terms of thinking about this from, from the sort of, from the gender standpoint. So the, when I teach consumer law, I teach a case called Charles of the Ritz. Charles of the Ritz is a, um, was a, um, 
manufacturer of, of, of uh, cosmetics. And they, one of their products was called Rejuvenescence, Rejuvenescence Cream. And the question was, does the um, name Rejuvenescence um, uh, misrepresent what the cream is going to do, which is to say, make your skin look young, like younger skin. Mm-hmm. And the, and the court, um, this is a 1944 opinion, the second circuit. And the court says, basically you misunderstand what consumer protection, what we're, what we're trying to do. Sorry, but not, I don't say consumer protection right here, but we misunderstand what we're trying to do when we talk about representations. So there's, you know, thinking about misrepresentation, when you say we're trying to think about what most people would understand. We are trying to protect the vulnerable here. Who are women, I take Those, it. Well, that's the issue right there. Um, there's no merit, says the court, to, to the argument that since no straight thinking person could believe that the cream would actually rejuvenate, there could be no deception. This results from a misconception of the FTC Act. Um, the point here basically is to worry about the vulnerable. Um, uh, the Wayfaring men, though fools should not err therein. So anyway, the point is like we're, we're going to protect fools. And I mean, there's interesting questions about how we might be making good or bad precedents by permitting the court to condescend when the plaintiff is a woman, right? Like it feels better, it feels easier to sort of maybe, maybe feels easier to the court. It doesn't feel better to me, obviously, but maybe it feels easier to the court to say like, I can both, I get to do both things at once. I get to both denigrate the plaintiff and give well, her money back. I mean, this is Mary Jo Frug's article, which, yeah. you know, ha- hasn't aged very well, that article, but basically says, you know, when, when women are in contracts case books, when they're, victims of fraud and or they're behaving in fanciful ways just like children and the age and people of color and the people who are rational in the books are white men and the 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 rest of the books is basically victims and i mean the article doesn't have a great prescription about like what to do about that sort of sort of descriptive facts of what the case books of the 80s really in the early 90s look like um, but it does, it does make you worried. I, I mean, it should make you, it does make me worried. And it made me worried as a casebook editor about this case and whether this is the right case, the right vehicle for trying to think about the fact opinion. I mean, if the real interesting part of the case is like the fact opinion question, I, I, I mean, I think the better case is like the, the haunted house cases, you know, you know, where the, the defendant, um, uh, seller of a oh, sorry, defendant bu- buyer and seller of a house which is purportedly haunted in the neighborhood, and the question is whether the fact of its the fact of its haunting, or the the social fact that people believe it's haunted, is a material thing that has to be disclosed as a part of the sale, or is it merely like a, a immaterial opinion? And it's the same kind of idea. Like, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about the kind of thing that some people might be worried about? Are we talking about the kind of thing that like exists in the world? Is the if is a rumor or is a an unfounded truth is an unfounded fact a fact? Which I mean, I think of those as like a, an easier way to have the conversations about the fact opinion line. Now the problem is they're easier, but in part like they're also shorn of all these really interesting questions about like the 
the intimacy, which is a real, I mean, I think the part of the case really is about like your dance instructor holding you around the waist and saying, you're graceful. And you saying, I didn't know that. Thanks. You discovered a thing about me. You know, I also think that it's it's tempting to think about the dancing itself as being a a gendered pursuit, right? I I think, I mean, that's, I think that sort of, that's empirically the case that, that, um, that amateur, um, dance lessons are more likely to have, are, are, um, bought by more women than men. Um, and I don't, you know, what if there was a strong form of, of Audrey Vokes's claim basically, which is I came to this dance studio because I wanted to participate because I wanted to do, because first I wanted to have a hobby. I was given to understand that I actually had an aptitude for something that I didn't know about myself and that there is a world. I just want to say that people who say given to understand probably should win no matter what. Like that just feels Thank like. You. Exactly. That is, that is how, that's how I, that's my parenting style for sure. <laughs> I have an aptitude for this. They tell me I have an aptitude for this thing, which I now take seriously. You have given me extensive promotional materials, which I understand are promotional, but they're also extensive. They're really detailed. They describe a whole bunch of things that might be available that to, to me as I increase in levels, including things I really want. I would like to be able to perform in front of large audiences if this is something that I'm actually good at, right? Dancing is an, is a, is an art form. I am pursuing this art form, it has meaning to me. And I understand that there are external, um, the objective measures of success in this world. And you claim that to doing these things, I was going to have access to the, I was going to, to be able to perform in various kinds of widely attended showcases. And then I realized that actually your whole thing is a scam. And I don't wanna do that. I'm not just here for the company. If I was here for the company, I would have done this once a week. Now I'm in it for real. My, you, I'm telling you, I take this hobby seriously. You don't get to judge whether or not my hobby has merit. I mean, I, so I do think that um, is a way stronger way to frame the thing. I do. I also, I guess I'd say that that to me seems a little bit like a promissory estoppel. I was say, as soon as I got there, I was like, yeah, it feels a very Barry Hoffman versus Red Owl S. Yeah, it does. It does. It's sort of like I've been led down a path. At right. no point did you actually say the words that would lead me to the thing. But gosh, like it's reasonable for me to, to be eligible. Eligible. Like, right, central. Right. Arthur Murray is centrally. There's a central right. line that, 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 that I would be eligible. Capable. Capable. Yeah. Capable of greatness. Not that you will be great, but you're capable yeah. of greatness. Yeah. And there knowing, is, that you, knowing that I was not capable of greatness. Well, I mean, yes, not, I mean, knowing that you probably were never going to achieve greatness, like anyone's capable of the thing, but you're never going to achieve it because you don't have the actual, you know, physical um, uh, uh, skills. I, I, I mean, yes, that sounds like a plausible estoppel or reliance-based theory. It doesn't, to me, I mean, the things that they would have had to say in order to make that a contract claim, at least as their traditional classical contract law, where the, the statements have to be kind of like coherently in one place, 
Yeah. So you get the brochures, you have a picture on the wall of people at a ballroom dancing competition. You bring in the ballroom dancing stars and they, and one of them is a widow of 53 years and she's now happy. And um, all of that doesn't work in a contract, all that extraneous, like um, non-promissory advertising conduct doesn't work in contract cases, but it works in consumer protection and it might work in promissory estoppel. And the, the problem I had with the case, like teaching the case apart from trying to sort of work through sexism and get to the other side without having everyone in the class feel uncomfortable was I ended up feeling it was just yet another example of contract law under delivering on a doctrinal promise. I mean, the doctrinal promise is like, look, you know, bargains shouldn't be underwritten by cynicism and fraud. But do I think at the end of the day, she wins if she is uh, um, a man and the court is not like motivated in these interesting ways, which are hard to deal with now? No, I don't think she wins. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I think that like so much of the case is built around these a contractual ideas about victimhood that it just is, it's a hard case to square with the course. And that, that just makes it, I mean, it just. No, yeah, I, yeah. And, and I'm, I, I hear you. I mean, when I teach, you know, when I, when I teach it as you do, presumably, I, you know, I partially teach from the, um, from the restatement, right? So the restatement 168 on the reliance on assertions of opinion. And I guess I do kind of take that, take the restatement at its word. And, if it's not the case, like, why have a, the, maybe that doctrine doesn't mean, maybe that doesn't mean anything, right? But, and maybe, the, and, and that, so maybe that's just the end of the, the, the answer, but. The 1982 restatement you're talking about, the second restatement. Yeah, you have a different one? N no, I just, I mean, the two things I want to say is making sure you're not talking about the first restatement. The second is that the law of the 60s and 70s, which the 1982 restatement captures. Yeah. Is is forty years old, yeah, and is not, and is probably not like if you were yeah. going to write misrepresentation today, you would probably get to a pretty different set of outcomes based on the cases that were the eighties and nineties and two thousands cases. In my view, I mean that, that this also could be the kind of case where you're restating law that doesn't exist. That just, there was, there isn't just much of it, right? right. So you're right. restating something where you're like actually when the courts have the choice, they actually go with sort of the you know state state UDAP. Uh, unfair unfair right. um, advertising practices, right? But but so just for the listener, the restatement is one set one sixty eight. <laughs> one listener, <laughs> I mean, <yeah. laughs> Not just me too. Me too says that Kim also listens to it. So like I think it's, it's... <laughs> he probably he probably puts it on like in a way that she's stuck listening to it. <laughs> It's not even true. We have also, of course, the listeners who are our students who are hoping we're going to give tips about the exam. Maybe you should say what you're on your exam now, now that we're already, you know, almost an hour into this one. <laughs> oh, is that true? Anyway, 168, reliance on assertions of opinion, um, which suggests that there are cases in which reliance on assertions of opinion is reasonable. And I mean, look, do I understand that most people have a very strong caveat emptor view of contract law, I for sure do. I mean, I just think if you randomly selected a judge today, they would be so worried about seeming paternalistic and sexist that this person would be thrown out of court in two turns around the room or two 
Whatever it is, whatever the quickest so version of the thing. You have to undermine the agency of the. Yes. You think, you, think you, you must undermine the agency of the plaintiff in order to get to this result. I mean, I think the other version of the case is you, you say this is a script. Right. That, that is. That, this is a business practice. A business is. practice that you could then attack with the state UDAP law. Yeah. Uh, that's, that is my view. I mean, and so like then I end up feeling like, why am I teaching this case, which for, requires us to go through this exercise of having the students right. take we, roles that are uncomfortable right. are we, or not just uncomfortable but potentially like where they right where they find themselves sort of ratifying the various stereotypes that they're trying to argue against and you know you and i talked in during the break during the break during the, the break in between when we went back to our trailer and talked about like how the director's not doing a good job in this particular episode um <laughs> we talked about how maybe it's gender like maybe the classroom dynamics are different you were able to to conduct a better discussion about this you know, as a, a, a woman professor than I am, because I like, I, and it's, I mean, you know, you're able to sort of take the, the hard position yeah. in ways that I can't. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, I'm speak right, right. I mean, part of the reason that I'm, that I, part of the argument for me of teaching the case is that it does reflect something or it speaks to something for me about the, historical about the sort of gendered nature of some kinds of contract analyses in a, over, over, over time, right? Where your sort of view about what parties are like, especially with respect to unconscionability. I mean, uh, the only one we really, the only one we, the, the one that does for some reason does not end up being this way is duress, right? But unconscionability, undue influence, misrepresentation, depending, right? Yeah. So as a as a historical artifact, yeah, I guess I do. I mean, well, and of course, now that I'm thinking about it in terms of consumer law, like the way that it speaks to how we think about what it means, who, you know, who you're marketing to, right? Right. right. Really matters. I mean, I, I was. Mean, I I do and I mean I hear what you're saying. Like yeah. I, I can see the pitch for selling this case as sort of like a doorway into the consumer law curriculum, which is it in some ways is. Or like, but it is I, I have found the case such a struggle to to I mean, even to think about like what it would look like to test on this kind of case. And I mean, have you had experience with that at all? Like what is that how how have you have you put students in the position where they have to like yeah, how do you how do you handle that? To be fair, I've historically taught the doctrine as being more straightforward. I take oh, what as having meaning. Oh God! Okay, sorry. Right? That's funny. Yeah, so, yeah. So like I, like you know, a case book is giving us a sampling of cases. Mm -hmm. Right. The restatement is in theory giving us a a better a more representative sample. Right. <laughs> and as a psychologist. I mean, also, just to be clear, I do have a JD. That's why I remain part of this. <laughs> but but no, no, I'm saying it for, for people listening. <laughs> like, as a psychologist, I am interested in doctrines that care about the mental, about the, the cognitions of the parties, 
right? About how they, about what it means taking to take seriously. I mean, I gen, I like this in contract law generally, right? I like when courts take serious. The, I like the way that courts take seriously what parties are supposed to understand each other. How, or sorry, how they're supposed to understand each other, and what's the real reality of those sort of metacognitions. Uh, I sorry. So, as a non-psychologist <laughs> who has no degree in psychology. I also find these questions, of course, interesting because they're not uniquely the province of people who are experts in them. However, the, what, are you giving me a look? Um, I can't, this is like a one-upmanship of people. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'd say like, I never found the doctrine straightforward. I never taught the doctrine as straightforward. I taught the doctrine as like, under what circumstances would a pragmatically minded court find its way to an excuse on these facts? Oh, and, and like, I found it, I found it quite hard to take seriously the restatement as anything other than aspirational, which is what I think of it as. I think of the restatement as sort of like Farnsworth, the, the restater. Yes. Who, Who's my favorite? Like, Hey, here's yes. Versus Arthur Mary, and here's Wood versus um, um, the, the, there's like a there's a um, the diamond case. Oh, Wood, Boynton. Boynton, right? Um, let's make a restatement out of it. Uh, you know, sometimes you get to make a defense, and I just don't believe it. I don't believe it. I, I and I can't imagine that a court today would get to the same outcome in this case based on the same doctrine. And then, and then, so then I just thought it's a case out of time. That's interesting. No, and I don't have any particular, I don't, yeah, I don't have intuitions. I mean, I look part of, part of what's part of what I view as the value of, of, of teaching from Summers, Hillman, Hoffman is that it's a book that care that is thinking about what pragmatic courts do. And I do not have intuitions myself about what pragmatic courts do. That is not like, that is not where my, and so, which is helpful because it works against my sort of my instinct to proceed sort of like as though things flow logically from the rules, as though everyone's goal is to sort of streamline the thing into a predictable. I mean, I guess I'll say this, then we can, well, we can uh, leave you last word. But like, I've been thinking a lot recently about like contract canons, like the, what's the canon of contract law, yeah. The, yeah. The, the set of cases or the story that contract judges tell themselves about like what they're up to. And what counts as the canon, what counts as not canon, what counts as the story, the daily story, what counts as not the daily story. And Bob Hillman, so the co-author in the case book has the same, different word, same idea, contract lore. Like what's the, what's like the, 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 the fable of contract law. And I see this case as decidedly not part, like not really a part of the, of the story of modern contract law, while as I do see it as fitting pretty well within the infants, old people, women canon of the 50s, where you had these men do business, and when there are victims, they're not men, yeah. and they get out of contracts because they are not normal contracting parties. And, yep. and that's, 
you know, I, that, yeah. like, I, I mean, that's, that's why, that's why I reject the case. I just don't want any part of it. I don't want any part of its foundations. I don't want any part of its outcome. I don't want any part of the case. I mean, you could think of it. No, I, I, I get you. I get you. The, if you think about um, the story of Williams versus Walker Thomas and right. So, so this has, this resonates in similar ways at that. Um, and, um, and you can think about this case as potentially being the start of like a road not taken. Right. And that I think is kind of interesting, right? Because I, so as someone who should never speak um, on anything about con law, because it's really, I just don't understand it. But if you think about certain kinds of con law dis- discrimination cases or employment discrimination cases, oftentimes they have um, counterintuitive plaintiffs, right? So it'll be a man bringing a sex discrimination complaint. And the idea is that for, for whatever reason, the typically the sort of impact litigation um, um, attorneys think like this is going to be more appealing for the court it then is going to we're then going to create some precedent and so the group that and so the set of concerns we really have that maybe is less that's that's maybe less pertinent in the case case we've got is going to have a body of law around it and like maybe there was a world right where you could get in i think that that's true for some of the consumer protection right is that mm-hmm. is that you start with cases where you're sort of like inching along like i think we can i think the judge is going to be okay with a consumer protection case in which they're willing to sort of be they're willing to um both condescend to the plaintiff and that's going to give them an excuse to do the consumer protection that they otherwise want to do. And then you, maybe you have some precedent that gets you to the next um, plaintiff. I, yes, I'll, I will say that when you were hitting your um, desk to emphasize it, it sounded like a timpani drum. And so oh, it, it, no, no, it was good. It was like really emphasizing like that gives them a thing. And it, it was like um, thunder is in the background as a crescendo for, for our, for our podcast. So with that, I have probably nothing else to say about this case, although it's, I mean, it is interesting and I, I, you know, I learned a lot. And so thanks for, thanks for the, the discussion. All right. Bye everybody.